First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. So before we open the word together, let's take a moment, church family, just pray together, ask the Lord uh, to be with us. And Father, we do thank you for your word, and we ask now that as we open it, that as we talk today about prayer, Father, that you would work in our hearts. Father, we pray that you would, Father, produce within our hearts a greater desire for prayer. Lord, that individually and as families and even as a church family, Father, that you would truly make us not just a church that prays, but a praying church that depends upon you in everything. And this is our prayer today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you open with me to Nehemiah chapter 1. Last week, we did a survey of the first two chapters of Nehemiah. We got a, a feel for how this story begins. But today, we're going to dive back into chapter 1. And in particular, we're going to look at the prayer that Nehemiah prays here in the first chapter. And we're going to see that great works, like the great work that Nehemiah does in rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem, that great works always begin with prayer. And that's the title and really the main idea of the message today, that greater things start with prayer. Now let's read God's Word together. Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, it came to pass in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. And so it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, You who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now day and night for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, (coughs) which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. And we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there. And bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling place for my name. Now these are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. For I was the king's cupbearer. And so again, the main idea today is so simple and yet so important for us to see that greater things always start with prayer. God did a greater work, a great thing through Nehemiah as we will see in the coming weeks. But all of that starts right here. All of that starts with Nehemiah's praying Greater things happen because of what I'm calling today greater things praying. And there are several qualities of greater things praying that we can see in these verses. And I want us to look at them and and talk about them. And then uh, at the end of our service today, I want to spend some time actually doing uh, what we're talking about and what we're studying in the Word of God today. And that's taking time to pray together. But first, the first quality of greater things praying is that it's a kingdom-burdened praying. 
It's a kingdom burden praying. And I'll explain what I mean by that in just a moment. Remember for a moment just the setting uh, that is here in Nehemiah. The, the book of Nehemiah is describing events that take place very late in the history of the Old Testament. Uh, God had already judged his people in 586 BC and had sent the Babylonians to destroy Jerusalem to carry away the people into captivity. And now it was nearly 150 years after that. Some of the Jewish people had already been able to return from the land of exile back to the land of Israel. But there were some, including Nehemiah, who were still living in captivity. And so it was now November or December of the year 446 B.C. And Nehemiah is living in the Persian Empire in the winter palace of Susa. And his brother Hanani comes with some other men from Judah, from the land that surrounds and includes the city of Jerusalem. And right away, you can see that Nehemiah is not concerned about himself, but he is concerned about God's people, and he is concerned about God's city. And so he asked his brother how they were doing, and Hanani says this in verse 3, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. And based on Nehemiah's response to that news in verse 4, you can tell that this was news to him, and it was terrible news to him. And what that means is that most likely when Hanani talks about the walls being knocked down, he's not only talking about what King Nebuchadnezzar had done 150 years before when he had come and knocked down the walls. Everyone knew about that. Uh, But most likely he's referring to what we read about in Ezra chapter 4, that there was a recent attempt to try to rebuild the walls around the city of Jerusalem, uh, but King Artaxerxes had put a stop to that. He had been told that the Jewish people wanted to rebel against the Persian Empire, and believing that, he put a stop to their work. And, and so what Nehemiah is finding out at this point is just how bad the state of affairs was in Jerusalem after all of that. The walls were all broken down and the gates were burned with fire. The city had no protection at all and was wide open to the attacks of their enemies. God's people were not doing well. And verse 4 shows us how Nehemiah responds. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So he hears this news, he fasts, he prays, he mourns, he weeps. Verses 5 through 11 tells us what he prays. But before we get to talk about what he prays, again, I just want us to take in why he prays. Why he prays. Don't miss that this news broke him, and after he hears it, it prompts him to pray the prayer that he prays. And, and we talked about this some last week, but I think it's important to begin here today as well. Because I really believe that this is probably the main reason that the church today prays so little. And when we pray, that the prayers we pray are often so self-absorbed. It's because of what Eugene Peterson has said, that most American Christians are primarily concerned with how God fits into their story. With how God fits into the story of their lives and what they're planning to do and and what their lives are about and how God can come in and make their story better. And what Eugene Peterson says is that what we should be concerned about is not so much how God fits in with our story, but how we fit in with His. And that's what you see in Nehemiah. You see someone who is concerned about God's story. He's concerned about the kingdom that God is building rather than his own little kingdom. You know, Jesus told us, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. But a lot of times we reverse that. 
A lot of times we seek after all these other things and the kingdom of God is somewhere in the background. The kingdom of God is more or less an afterthought. Church, when we get this right, when we begin to focus and seek first the kingdom of God, His rule and reign in the hearts of people that Jesus died to save, and when we seek that kingdom above all, it will begin to change the way we pray. And so the prayer that Nehemiah prayed was a kingdom-burdened prayer. He was concerned about the broken-down walls of the city of God and the state of the people of God. And when we look out at our culture today, and we look out at our community today, I don't think that there's any way that we could come to any other conclusion than spiritually speaking, the walls are broken down. Last week, we talked about the 269 million people in the United States who don't know Jesus as their Savior. Last week, we talked about the 200,000 lost people within 10 miles of where we're sitting today who don't know Jesus as their Savior. And we see the results of that, do we not? We see the brokenness in people's lives. We see the people who are growing up in broken homes. We see the people who are addicted and in bondage. We see people who have no hope, and we're seeing that more and more and more. We're seeing the brokenness all around us because the walls are broken down. And when we see that, when we see that the walls are broken down, our prayers cannot only be, God, give me a good day today. Right? Our prayers cannot only be, God, be with my family. God, help me out. We need to pray those things. We should pray those things, but we should not end there. Because when we begin to see the state of affairs that is around us, and when we have a heart for the kingdom of God, then we cannot be unaffected by that. Our prayers become kingdom burdened prayers. And practically speaking, if, you, if you're hearing this and you're saying, you know what, as I just honestly evaluate my own prayer life, uh, it's just not there. Very often I do pray the kind of prayers that you were just talking about. I don't very often get much beyond that. And I know that I should be burdened about the loss that sets around me, but honestly speaking, I'm just really not. If that's where you are, then what I would say is that a place to begin is just to ask God. To go to God in prayer and make that your prayer and say, God, I know that I should be burdened for your kingdom, but, but very often I'm just thinking about my kingdom. And so, God, would you change my perspective? God, would you give me your heart for the people who are around me who don't know you? Would you break my heart over what breaks yours? And when we begin to pray that prayer, I believe that our God will answer it. And he will begin to change the way we pray. That's the first quality of greater things praying. It's kingdom burdened praying. Here's number, number two. The second quality of greater things praying is it's fervent praying. Fervent praying. And, and, and you know, really you can see that there in verse four with the words that are used. He says, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for many days. I fasted and I prayed. I think that when you read that, it's safe to say that Nehemiah's prayers were not casual or flippant. They were earnest and fervent. And it's worth just pausing there as you see that example and just each of us asking ourselves, does our own prayer life match up with that? When we hear of a need in someone's life, particularly a spiritual need, and we hear the needs like the ones that are listed in verse 3, if we're honest, if someone was writing verse 4 about how we respond to that, how would verse 4 read? Would verse 4 say something like this? And so it was when I heard these things that I turned on the TV and watched a football game. Or would verse 4 say, well, so it was when I heard these things, this great spiritual need in someone else's life that I got on Facebook and I looked for some more encouraging posts so I didn't have to think about that negative one. 
And, and I'm afraid that that is sometimes how we respond, that there is far too little fervent praying going on in the church today. And I assure you, I'm speaking as much to myself as I am to any of you. That God is calling each of us to deeper, more earnest, more fervent praying than we have done before. And one of the ways that you can know if you're praying fervently is if you're ever willing to sacrifice anything in order to pray. It says here that Nehemiah fasted and prayed. Even though he had access to the finest food in all the world at that time, he chose to give up that food, at least on occasion, to give himself to prayer. I don't know if fasting has been a part of your spiritual life up till this point, but I want to challenge us as a church that during this Greater Things initiative this fall, during these crucial days in the life of our church, that we would fast and pray as God leads us to. That might look different for each of us, but just ask God what he would have you do. Maybe it's to give up one meal each week during this next six or eight weeks. Or maybe it's to take a day each week over this time. And just to commit that time that you would have spent eating to commit that time to praying. And to let the hunger that is within you, the physical hunger, to allow the Lord to to, to stir up within you a greater spiritual hunger for the bread that really satisfies us in the deepest places of our hearts. Nehemiah was willing to sacrifice food in order to pray. Are we willing to do that? He also was willing to sacrifice sleep to pray. And you see that in verse 6. It says in the middle of that verse that he prayed day and night. I don't think that that's just a figure of speech. That's persistent, fervent praying. He prayed day and night. I think that sometimes we pray one day. Right? Isn't that the kind of prayers we pray? One day I will pray for that if that day ever comes around. But Nehemiah prayed day and night. He prayed fervently. He was willing to give up sleep in order to, to, to pray. And church, let's pray like he did. Let's pray fervently. Let's pray persistently. Let's pray about the spiritual needs that are right around us in our community. And let's ask God not only to use our church to meet that need, but to use all of the churches that are here in Melbourne and Palm Bay where the gospel is being proclaimed to meet that need. That every church in this community would be a lighthouse to those who are lost. We've seen the Greater things praying, that it's a fervent praying, that it's a kingdom burden praying. Number three, it's also an awestruck kind of praying. <clears throat> there are actually nine prayers altogether in the book of Nehemiah that Nehemiah prays. Every time you find this man, you find him praying. And most of the prayers are, are very short, like the one in chapter two in verse four, when the king, King Artaxerxes, asked Nehemiah what he wants. And he kind of throws up a quick, silent prayer to God before he answers the question. But don't be fooled by that. Don't see that and think that's the only kind of prayers that Nehemiah prays, these kind of quick, one-sentence prayers. The reason why Nehemiah instinctively turns to God in those quick, one-sentence prayers is because his whole life was saturated with prayer. And chapter 1 is... A great example of that. This is the longest recorded prayer of Nehemiah's in this book, and it's a great example and model for us. Look at how he begins this prayer in verse 5. I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. So the walls are broken down. What does Nehemiah do? He goes to the Lord in prayer. And he reminds himself of who his God is. That is where we need to begin. Reminding ourselves that we have a big God. And as one person put it, the more that Nehemiah reminded himself that he had a big God, the problems in Jerusalem began to be dwarfed by the size of his God. Look at what he says. He says, Lord God of heaven. The word Lord in all capital letters is a stand-in for the covenant name of God, the name Yahweh, the great 
I am, the one who was and is and is to come. This is the God that Nehemiah prays to. He says, the Lord God of heaven, the the God who is high above us, the God who is supreme over everything else. And then he says, oh, great and awesome God. You know, if there is one word in the English language that we are all guilty of seriously overusing and abusing, it is the word awesome. Right? And we're all guilty of it, right? We go see a movie. Oh, that was an awesome movie. Right? We listen to a song. What an awesome song that was. What an awesome burger I just had at the burger place. Right? Now, they do make a mean burger. But I think we need to reserve the word awesome for things that are truly awesome, things that are awe-inspiring. And there is no one in the universe who is more awe-inspiring than our great and awesome God, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who is all-powerful, the one who is all-knowing, the one who is everywhere present at the same time, the one who is righteous and merciful and holy, the one who is gracious and loving. He is our great and awesome God, the one who keeps his covenant, as Nehemiah said, the one who is faithful to us even when we are not faithful to him. And so as Nehemiah begins his praying, you can see that his praying is awestruck praying. He's in awe of the God that he is praying to. In fact, in verses 4 through 11, in those eight verses, there are 44 references to God. 44 references to God in eight verses. As one person said, while we tend to be man-centered in our prayers or or circumstance-centered in our prayers, Nehemiah is thoroughly and radically God-centered in his prayers. And so is all greater things praying. Because, listen, those who God uses to do greater things pray believing that they have a big God. That no matter how big the problem might appear, that no matter how widespread the need might be, no matter how overwhelming the goal might seem, that there is nothing that is too big for our God. Do you believe that, church? Do you believe that our God is big enough for the task that He has set in front of us? Do you believe that our God is big enough for whatever personal trial is going on in your life right now? He is big enough. Let's remember who we are praying to. We're praying to a great and awesome God. And that's why greater things praying is awestruck praying. That's number three. Here's number four. And it's not unrelated to what we have just been talking about. But greater things praying is also repentant praying. The word repent means to to turn around. It it means to acknowledge to God that we have sinned against him and not just to confess that sin, but, but to be willing and to desire to turn around and to leave that sin behind in order to chase after what he would have in our lives. And the reason I say that this is related to number three is that when you begin to think about how great and awesome God is, And when you begin to think about how faithful God has been to you, what the Spirit of God ends up doing is causing us to realize the areas and the pockets of our life where we have not been faithful to Him. And that's what Nehemiah begins to realize and begins to voice in verse 6. He says, Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open, that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now day and night, For the children of Israel and your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you, both my father's house and I have sinned. Nehemiah knows that the reason why the people of God were sent into captivity to begin with was because of their sinfulness. Nehemiah probably knows that the reason why God had not yet fully restored his people to the land was because of their continued sinfulness. And what I love most of all is that Nehemiah does not exclude himself from that. He doesn't act as though he himself and his family were the only perfect people in all of Israel. Rather, he says very clearly, no, both my father's house and I have sinned. 
that, that I am complicit in this, that I am guilty in this as well. And, and that has to be our heart because I think very often when we think about what's going wrong in our community, And when we think about what's going wrong in our nation, very often, instead of praying we prayers of repentance, we pray they prayers. We say, you know, the problem lies somewhere else, right? The reason why our country and our culture is where it is is because of what these other people have done. It's because of the people who took prayer out of schools. It's because of this politician or that politician. It's because of the ACLU. Whatever group it might be, right, that is your target, we have this whole list of people who are to blame for the spiritual condition of our nation when Jesus said that the church is supposed to be salt and light. That we are supposed to be salt. We're supposed to be a preserving agent in our culture. That we're supposed to be light. We're supposed to be a city that's set on a hill that shines its light out. And so if we look around us and we see that things have not been so well preserved, and if we look around us and we see that things are darker than we would like, we cannot act as though we are not complicit in that. And we need to understand that we have failed as the church to be the salt and light that Jesus Christ has called us to be. That we have been silent when we should have been bold. That we have been enamored with materialism and the pleasures of this world. That we have lived very much in the same way that the rest of the world has lived to the point that they can tell no difference. And so we do not need to say, God, forgive them. We need to say, God, forgive us. Because me and my father's house have sinned against you. And every True revival here or anywhere else will always begin with the people of God coming to realize that and in brokenness confessing our sin to God and asking Him to forgive us. That's where Nehemiah begins. And in verse 7, he doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't say that their sin or his sin is excusable. He says, God, we have no excuse. You gave us your commandments. You gave us your ordinances. We knew what you wanted us to do, and we just haven't done it. And so while I believe with every fiber of my heart that God wants to do greater things through our church to penetrate the lostness that is here and everywhere, here is the truth. Before God will do greater things through us, God wants to do greater things in us. Before God will use us to tell others about Christ, God wants to work in us to make us more like Christ. And that starts with being open to what the Spirit of God is saying to our hearts. And so, friend, where in your life right now is the Holy Spirit of God putting His finger and saying, this this area right here does not look like Jesus? Where is He calling you? Where is He calling me to repent today? And will we hear Him? Will Will we be willing to obey Him in that area? Not in the future, but right now. Greater things praying has to be repentant praying that is willing to turn around and run away from whatever God says has to go. Here's the fifth quality of greater things praying. It is a promise claiming praying. And so while Nehemiah is open and honest about his sin, while he asks the Lord for forgiveness, he does not wallow in that sin, but eventually he comes to a place of remembering the merciful, gracious promises of God. And like Moses, Nehemiah stands in the gap for the people of God and reminds God of the promises that he has made. And I know when you hear that and when you read this, it almost sounds like, man, you know, maybe it's not something he should say to God. God, do you remember when you said this? And yet when you look through the pages of Scripture, it doesn't seem that God minds that. In fact, it seems that God likes that. That God likes it when we remind him of his promises, not because he's forgotten them. How could he ever forget? But he likes it when we remind him of his promises because it means, first of all, that we've heard his promises. And secondly, that we believe his promises. And thirdly, that we believe God is going to act in accordance with those promises. And he likes that heart of faith in the heart of his children. 
And that's what Nehemiah does. In, in verse 8, he says, Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are faithful, I will scatter, unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. Now, that's the part of God's promise that certainly he had already kept. People of God had sinned against him, and so he scattered them among the nations. Nehemiah knew that's why he was scattered among the nations at that very moment, living in the Persian city of Susa. But in verse 9, Nehemiah goes on and says this, But you said, God, if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heaven, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. He's saying, God, you told us that if we disobeyed, you would scatter us, and you've done that. But you also told us that if we obeyed, that you would gather us back from the nations. This is what you have promised to do, God. And even that had partially already happened because there were some, again, who had already come back from exile to the promised land. But what Nehemiah seems to be implying is, God, that, that regathering has not yet been completed. First off, because there are some like myself who have not yet been gathered back to the land. But secondly, God, because when you said that you would gather us back into your land, God, that meant that you would make us secure. That meant that you would fully restore us. And God, with a wall broken down and a gate that's been burned with fire, God, that hasn't happened yet. And so God, do you remember what you said you would do? And he's claiming the promise of God. And church, greater things praying will include that aspect even today. The reason why we can ask God to do greater things is because we believe he is a great God who always keeps his promises. And so we can say with Nehemiah, God, do you remember when you said that? God, do you remember when you said that you would complete the good work that you started in us? God, do you remember when you said that the gates of hell would not be able to stand against your church? God, do you remember when you said that you will do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think? God, do you remember when you said all of that? God, would you do that right now? Would you do it here? Would you do it in Melbourne? Would you do it in my lifetime for the glory of your name? Greater things praying believes and claims the promises of God. It's a promise claiming type of praying. Number six, it's also a gospel remembering kind of praying. We'll just touch briefly on this. But in verse 10, Nehemiah gives the reason why he believes that God will keep his promises. And that's because of what God had already done for his people in the past. In verse 10, now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. The language he uses here is the language from the Exodus event where God had rescued his people from bondage brought them out with a mighty hand. And church, even more so, we can say today that God has redeemed us with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He hasn't redeemed us from bondage in Egypt, but he's redeemed us from bondage to sin. And he has sent his one and only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and paid the ransom price that needed to be paid to set us free and then rose again on the third day. And that is why we can say to God, we are your people whom you have redeemed. And that is why we can say what Nehemiah says in verse 11. And so, Lord, I pray, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. This is why we can have access to come into the throne room of God. This is why we can be bold enough to come into God's presence and present our request to him and ask him to do great things. Is because we've been covered with the blood of Christ. Hebrews says it gives us boldness. It gives us access to come into the throne room because of our great high priest and let our requests be made known 
to God. We can say to him, God, I am your son. I am your daughter. And we can bring our request to our father. And as Jesus told us, we have a father who delights and wants to hear the prayers of his children and to answer our prayers for his glory. So greater things, praying is a gospel, remembering praying. And then finally, we cannot miss this final quality. Greater things, praying is a mountain moving kind of praying. You know, one day Jesus was walking past a fig tree that didn't produce fruit and it withered away at Jesus's command, if you remember that, and the disciples were just stunned by that. And so Jesus said these words to them, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to this fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Jesus was saying to these first disciples and he's saying to us that if we pray with faith that our prayers somehow in the sovereignty of God have a mountain moving kind of power. And it's Crazy to think about that, isn't it? That our prayers, the Bible says, James 5 says, that our prayers affect much. That they can change things because God hears us. And back in Nehemiah, Nehemiah tells us what his mountain was. His mountain was one particular man. The most powerful man in all the world at that time, the king of the Persian Empire, the king of an empire that stretched all the way across the Middle East from India all the way to Egypt. And Nehemiah knew that if he was going to be able to do anything to help the city of Jerusalem, he was going to need this man's approval and permission and support. And he also knew that this very same man had previously stopped this exact same effort. <laughs> And so what he was asking was for this king to essentially change his mind and to give Nehemiah permission to do something that previously he had made them stop doing. This is a mountain to move. And yet Nehemiah, notice how he refers to this man. Look at the end of verse 11. Let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. The most powerful person in all the world, King Artaxerxes, when compared to a sovereign, all-powerful God, is just another man. Remember the words of Solomon in Proverbs 21, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. And as we'll see in the remainder of this book, God did move mountains on Nehemiah's behalf. The king hears his request and he says yes to all that he asked and more. And Nehemiah goes to Jerusalem and in 52 miraculous days, the walls of the city were rebuilt. Church, greater things praying is mountain moving praying. Think about what we're asking God to do with greater things. The goal of greater things is a large goal. It is a God-sized goal. But actually, meeting our financial goal is really just the beginning of what we're asking God to do. Because what we're really asking God to do in the years to come is to transform the lives of thousands and thousands of people here in Melbourne and Palm Bay. What we're really asking God to do is to work in our hearts in such a way that many of us in this room perhaps will be willing one day to leave this place and to go to another church so that we can have another light of the gospel shining somewhere else. And then what we're really asking God to do is when we send those church planning teams out, that God would work in such an amazing way through those teams that cities will be transformed and people will be transformed in places far away from Melbourne and Palm Bay. This is really what we're asking God to do, and we can't do any of it. Only God can move those kind of mountains. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do Nothing. And that is why, church, I pray that all the way through greater things and beyond, that we will be a church that is entirely dependent upon the power and the might of our God. 
And so we're going to take the time that we have left and we're going to do some greater things praying. And we're going to ask God, like Nehemiah did, to move mountains for the glory of his name. I've asked several uh, folks to come and I want to ask them to go ahead and come at this time and join me on the platform. And I've asked them to come and just to lead us in prayer over a few specific areas related to greater things, to praise God for what he has already done and to ask God to be at work in the coming months and in the coming years. And so at this time, I want to ask you just to bow your head with me, to kneel where you are if God leads you to do that. You can come and kneel here at the altar, wherever, whatever posture God leads you to take during this season of prayer. And as one by one, these folks from our church family come and lead us in prayer, would you just join your hearts with theirs? Let's pray together. Father, you are so good. 98 years ago plus, you had a great plan for this church in downtown Melbourne. As your people gathered, as your word was accurately taught, as disciples were made, relationships were built, lives changed, and as the church grew. God, years after that, you prepared us for another change, a great change. God, you closed doors when they needed to be closed, and you opened doors when they needed to be opened. And that's why we're here this morning on this incredible piece of property. That God, 20 years ago, they were leaders, and Brother Larry, amongst church folk, God, just praying and, and asking for discernment, and you gave it to him. And you opened the door for great things to continue. God, it is amazing to see your faithfulness through this journey. It's amazing to see and to hear of all the lives, the countless hundreds and thousands of lives that have been impacted through your church body here at First Baptist Melbourne. But God, it's not our work, it's your work. We recognize that and we give you full glory, honor, and praise. And God, in this new, exciting, incredible season, we know that you're going to continue to do greater things because that's the God that you are. And we don't want to limit that. God, we want to come before you trusting. We want to come before you with faithful hearts knowing, God, that you are our faithful king who's given us all we need in your son alone. But God, you have called us to be your ambassadors. You've called us to take your word here and everywhere and to make disciples here and everywhere for your glory. Father God, I thank you for the unbelievable unity of this church. I first thank you for the unity of our staff. I thank you for the, the unity of our committees that meet to hire and to meet to, to talk about buildings. And God, I thank you most of all for the unity of our body. We recognize and God give you full glory for that because that unity is from your spirit alone. It's something that we can't generate on our own. We need you. And we're going to need you in these next steps of this Greater Things campaign as we talk about big things. God, that we lay right at the foot of your cross where it needs to be. Trusting that you, oh God, will provide what, what, what God you want us to have and what you want us to, to do. God, it'll be from you and we'll give you the glory you deserve. Lord, we are grateful for this church and the vision that started almost 100 years ago faithful pastors that seen that vision through seeking you God to spread the gospel and make disciples and for the people that supported them pastors that brought us to this point Lord I just am so grateful for the team of pastors that you have here now they support that same vision Lord and I just pray that you would uh, protect them as we move forward with the greater things and that you would protect their families, 
that you would give them wisdom, Lord, that they would uh, seek you in every decision. I pray for our staff, Lord, as they are just uh, can get overwhelmed with things in the office and around the building, and I just pray that you would just comfort them and protect them also. Lord, I just pray for our congregation, too, that uh, we would seek you, Lord, that we would seek your wisdom, and that you would just bind the fear, the anxiety that we may have going through this process, Lord, over and over again in your word. You have shown that when your people seek you and they are faithful, you deliver them. I ask, Lord, that we would seek you, prayerfully seek you, and that we would just be still and hear your voice. In Jesus' name. God, as we enter this new time, this new phase, this new exciting adventure, we know that you will do greater things than we as humans can even possibly imagine. Father, you have given us so much, and now I come to you, Father, asking in prayer, humbly bowing, that you would give each and every one of us a spirit of sacrificial generosity. We know that everything we have is a gift from you, and everything we have belongs to you. Help us to be joyful. Help us to be generous. Help us to be sacrificial in our giving. We trust you with our time, with our talents, with our attributes, with our spiritual gifts. And Father, we trust you with our money, praying that everything we say, everything we do, and everything we give will be for your glory. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the decades of unity that you have blessed this church with. And yet we confess the selfishness and pride that pulls us apart so often. In these days to come, I pray that we would be unified. That we would not be unified around a campaign or a program or a building, but unified around the cross unified around the gospel. Father, that like the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we would be one in a way that we and the world around us do not understand. And Lord, that that would be a shining light in this community for the gospel, for you. Father, make us one. Father, for reasons only you know and understand completely, you love us enough to die for us. You love us enough to use us as part of your plan to grow your kingdom, even though you don't need us. And I'm sure it would be a lot easier to not use us. But you have chosen in your sovereign wisdom to include your children so that it will grow us to look more like Jesus. Make that our heart's desire. That we would obey you to reach our neighbors, the kids in our classrooms, the foreign nationals that are here going to school and their families, our coworkers, our friends, our family that chooses to live in rebellion to you. Remind us to pray for them because apart from you, we can do nothing. Nothing happens, no, no fancy speech or clever argument is going to work on them unless your Holy Spirit is working in them and that comes as a result of our prayers. Father, please forgive me for all the hours of I've wasted on my own pleasure and forgotten those that are living in darkness around the world that are slaves to idols that can do nothing for them. 
or who have a distorted view of what it means to follow Jesus because of our American culture and the lies they were fed when they were little, or because they were in a church that didn't truly have the gospel. Father, please give us your heart for the nations. Do whatever it takes in your mercy to make us beat as your heart to not be carnally minded, to not be self-absorbed. We ask you to use us to be a light in this community and around the world, wherever you choose to send us. Help us to go. Help us to be brave. Help us to do it because we adore you and you asked us to do it. Help us to live as though we truly believe that heaven is coming and heaven is real and that's where our that's where we belong that is our citizenship in Jesus name Lord God almighty you are the sovereign king of all the earth and you are on your throne and you are ruling and reigning on high. And we confess and believe that one day, one day soon, your son Jesus will return. And you will bring a new heaven and a new earth that he will reign forever and ever. And Lord, we thank you for the kingdom that you're building. Thank you for saving us by your grace. Lord, we confess that nothing that has happened in our church up until now and nothing that will happen after this is because of us. Lord, it's because of you. That you are great and you are greatly to be praised and Lord, you do not need us to accomplish your will. You are not dependent upon us for your purpose to be fulfilled you will build your kingdom on earth. But Father, would you let us, in your graciousness, would you let us be a part of it? And would you do greater things here in Melbourne and through this church than you've ever done before? And Lord, even as we ask that, Father, we long for the day when we will stand around your throne with every tribe and every tongue and every people group on the globe, those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And even while we ask for greater things, Father, we do so knowing that that truly will be the greatest thing of all. It's in Jesus' name we pray and God's people said.